Hello, and welcome to the East Tennessee History Center. My name is Benjamin Epperson, and I'm the program manager of Knox County's Healthy Kids, Healthy Communities Initiative. Um, today, it's my pleasure to introduce Mr. John Nolt as he discusses Schlosser's Fast Food Nation. Uh, if you've been able to keep an eye on the news in the past few weeks, you may have seen a report that came out just recently entitled um, F as in Fat, How Obesity Threatens America's Future. Uh, in it, Tennessee is correctly pegged as the second most obese state in the nation. We're tying Alabama. Yep, yep. So we didn't get in first there. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it, it says that one, one third of us are obese. And um, this problem been, has been going on. Our uh, former, oh, what was his name? It was declared an epidemic in 2001. Um, anyway, many arguments can be made that if Tennesseans would just feed their families healthy foods and stop indulging in the quick and easy option of fast food, then this whole epidemic would be behind us. Others, myself included, might argue that no choice is ever made in a vacuum and that many Americans are not able to make the healthy choices for themselves and their children because of the enormous barriers they face on a daily basis. Healthy foods are rarely as affordable or accessible as other heavily processed food-like substances, fast food included. In addition to this, not everyone has a safe, accessible, and well-maintained place to bring their children to play or to gain physical activity on a daily basis. These disparities are often at their worst, sadly, for people with lower income, lower education, and for racial and ethnic minorities. Uh, there's a growing body of evidence that shows that the world in which we live, our daily environment, shapes our health and quality of life by influencing and often forcing the choices that we make. Only by coming together like we're doing today, um, examining these important issues, and then going out into our community and talking with our neighbors and talking with our appointed leaders can we bring about a positive change to change this epidemic. Um, that's why I'm so happy that Mr. John Nolt is here to discuss this electrifying book with us uh, so near its 10-year anniversary. I think it came out in 2001. John is a professor at the philosophy department at the University of Tennessee, where he's been teaching since 1978, in one capacity or another. He holds a bachelor's, master's, and PhD from Ohio State University. Mr. Nolt's teaching and research focuses on environmental ethics and logic. He's written and published numerous chapters and books on topics ranging from land use and greenhouse gases to Nietzsche, nuclear weapons production. He's written books on southern Appalachian region, the Tennessee Valley, and the philosophy of nonviolence, and is currently working on um, a book which fo focuses on sustainability and the need for hope. He's written software, he's taught dozens of undergraduate and graduate courses, he's raised children, he's written for our newspapers and our radio stations, petitioned to list the Berry Cave salamanders and endangered species, advocated for the cleanup of Superfund sites, written and received many grants, the list goes on and on and on, it's really long. Mr. John Nolt is a self-proclaimed neo-Luddite, which I like. His wife, Miss Annette Mendela, is also a philosopher. Together they grow a lot of their own food organically at home, ride bicycles, and contribute to our quality of life here in Knoxville and Knox County through environmental activism and community engagement. It makes me very happy to introduce Mr. John Nolt. Thank you, Ben, and uh, thanks for that reminder that uh, a lot of people don't have access to healthy food, and that's one of the major problems that we face. I'm, I'm not going to be talking about that today, but you're certainly right. That is true, and it's a significant problem. 
Uh, I want to begin with a, with a quote by Eric Schlosser. What I'm going to do is uh, briefly review the book for those of you who haven't done your homework or who did it so long ago like I did uh, that uh, you kind of forget. I read the book when it first came out. When Emily asked me to do this talk, she gave me a copy. I had to read it again because I'd forgotten most of, most of it. So I'm going, to, I'm going to briefly summarize what I take to be some of the book's main points, and then I'll make some, some comments, some evaluative comments, and, and open it for discussion. We have until about 1 o'clock, uh, and uh, I hope to talk for no more than about... Uh, half an hour at most, maybe, maybe just 20 minutes, and then, and then let you all participate. It's good also to see so many uh, old friends here. Uh, I, I know a lot of you, and, and uh, I, it, it worries me a little because many of you know more than I do on some of these topics, and I, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, and that's not always a good thing. I, I feel sometimes better when I'm preaching to people who disagree because they probably learn something more than, than people who agree with me. So if any of you do disagree, please feel free to disagree. I would appreciate that. Okay, here's the quote I want to begin uh, with from the book. This is on page three. On any given day in the United States, about one quarter of the adult population visits a fast food restaurant. (laughs) There's Melissa with her fast food. How many many of you brought fast food today? Okay, so we're we're not quite at the same, you know, it's not quite a quarter of us, but a quarter of the population every day goes to a fast food restaurant. That's an amazing statistic. When you think about the numbers of people, that is. How fast food has transformed the American landscape, how, how it's transformed the American diet, how it's transformed American life. It's, it's a profound influence on American society. In many ways, this is a great success story, right? It's a great financial success story. People have laid, made a lot of money in the fast food industry, It's a success story in terms of availability, in terms of affordability, in terms of speed of service. Uh, From an economic standpoint, it seems like a complete win. It's it's a very vibrant kind of industry. Uh, If we look at it also from the point of view of personal pleasure, it seems to be a great success. A lot of that stuff really tastes good. It's hard to stop eating it. It's delicious. I love McDonald's French fries. I don't eat them, but I love them. But if we look at it from a broader point of view, we begin to see something that Eric Schlosser calls the dark side of the all-American meal, which is the subtitle of this book, The Dark Side. Uh, And that's what the book is about, of course. It's the things that we don't notice, the, the subtle effects, the unintended effects, the side effects, the economic externalities that uh, fast food industry has brought. And so what I'm going to do as I review the book is I'm going to point out various dark sides that, um, that Eric Schlosser talks about. I'm going to make some comments on those, and then I'll make some overall wrap-up comments and open it up. Schlosser himself is an investigative journalist who's, who's written numerous articles for such publications as the Atlantic Monthly, Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, The Nation, Vanity Fair, Mother Jones, prominent publications, all Fast Food Nation was a runaway bestseller. It was on the New York Times bestseller year list for two years after it came out. Very popular book. It seemed to strike a nerve at the time that it, that it came out. It was a very timely book. There had been other ex- ex- exposés of the fast food industry written earlier that, that never made a dent. But for some reason, uh, Schlosser's really took off. Maybe in part just because he's a good writer. His research is solid. 
the footnotes are this huge, thick section at the end of the book. He's done a great job researching it, and, and he's, he's a compelling writer as well. The book begins with an account of what he calls the founding fathers of the fast food industry. And he recounts how Richard and Maurice McDonald uh, began with uh, a drive-in restaurant in Pasadena, California in 1937. It did okay, but then they, they moved to San Bernardino and opened what they called the McDonald Brothers Burger Bar Drive-In, which was sort of the ancient ancestor of the McDonald's restaurants. It did okay, too, but they wanted, they wanted something better. Uh, they, they ran this thing through the war, and uh, in 1948, they decided they, they, they hit on a new idea. They decided to make this as fast and as cheap as possible. So the old, dry, old-style drive-ins all had har- car hops, usually teenagers, often uh, girls who were dressed up to attract the boys. And they would, uh, you know, they'd run, you'd, you'd pull up to a, a, a microphone, you'd call in your order, and the car hop would come out again. They got rid of the car hops. They, they automated the system as much as they could. They developed what they called the speedy service system, which was uh, very uniform. All the hamburgers had the same ingredients and so on. And they were able to produce burgers at a very fast rate, burgers and fries at a very fast rate, very, very cheap, with uh, little labor. And the, the labor that they had, of course, was, was uh, not expensive because it's mostly teenagers. This was a great success in Southern California, uh, and uh, uh, they opened a number of restaurants doing this, but they, they were pretty much satisfied with that. They didn't want to take it much further. And then Ray Kroc came along. Ray Kroc is an interesting individual, and, and uh, Schlosser tells a, great, a number of interesting stories about him. His life uh, is curiously interwoven with that of Walt Disney, and I won't say more than that, but uh, the, the, Schlosser tells that story. It's, a, it's an interesting intermingling there. Kroc was fundamentally a salesperson. He worked in sales in a, in a bunch of different industries, and, and he got the idea of, of opening franchises of this McDonald's speedy service system all over the nation. And so he bought uh, the McDonald brothers out and, and founded uh, what the, the McDonald's that we know today. The major strategy that he adopted in the 1960s, which proved to be very successful in uh, attracting customers to the restaurant, was marketing to children. McDonald's was one of the first corporations, uh, uh, certainly one of the first food corporations, that aimed their marketing primarily at children. So you had... You know, Ronald McDonald, the friendly clown, your trusted friend is the, is the idea that they were trying to get across in their advertising. Kitty characters, playgrounds, toy promotions, these um, things where a movie comes out and you get the toys from the movie at McDonald's, promotions in schools, um, and so on and so on. So the marketing to children really helped this thing take off. And that's the first point at which we start seeing the dark side of this industry because, uh, of course, what's being marketed to children is food that's high in fat, high in sugar, high in salt, and not very nutritious. Certainly not a balanced meal. Happy meal is not a balanced meal. Um, You don't see many vegetables at McDonald's. You don't see much fruit at McDonald's. What what you do see is highly processed. Uh, And this is not the kind of thing that you want children to be eating. Uh, Maybe as an occasional treat, but certainly not as a regular diet. But this was marketed, this was pounded into kids' heads in all the media, in, in all the advertising, in the toys, and so on. 
And it worked. Kids developed an uh, affection for the brand image. Kids developed an affection for Ronald McDonald. Ronald McDonald became the most recognized symbol in the world uh, in terms of a commercial symbol. The speedy service system worked economically. You had teenagers as the main employees. They were working for low wages, few or no benefits, no job security. Often the hours were late, which was not that great a thing for, for teenagers to be up late at night closing McDonald's at 11 or whenever they close. Also, Kroc uh, introduced a franchise system, which enabled the McDonald's Corporation to place the risk on the ha- on, in the hands of small private investors. Much of the risk of opening a new restaurant now falls to the, to the small private investors. So they divest themselves of the risk. People are taking the risk. Many of them are failing. Many of them are going bankrupt in the process of trying to establish a franchise. Uh, but the ones that succeed then continue to, to make great profit for the central corporation. So a lot of people are hurt by this. A lot of people who, who try to get into it are hurt by it, uh, but they just fall by the wayside. As a, business, as a business model, this is wildly successful. It's taught in business schools. Look, the franchise system, here's, here's how you do it. But it has its dark side as well for those who try to open a restaurant and, and, and don't succeed. Often... One franchise will open and another will open down the road a couple of miles and you've got two franchises competing. It's not in the interest of the franchise owner, but it is in the interest of the corporation. They also made use of, of federal welfare in a certain sense. They used small business loans, uh, says Schlosser, thereby turning a federal agency that was created to help independent small businesses into one that eliminates them because of the competition from McDonald's, the small family restaurant, mom-and-pop place, had a hard time struggling, and you know, people would, would go to McDonald's and get their burger really fast. So Schlosser summarizes this by saying, the basic thinking behind fast food has become the operating system of today's retail economy. Wiping out small businesses, obliterating regional differences, and spreading identical stores throughout the country like a self-replicating code. I think that's a really interesting analogy. Schlosser in, in one of the most intriguing chapters to me, I had no idea this was true until I read the book, talks about how the taste and aroma of fast food are manufactured. Uh, here's another quote. Much of the taste and aroma of American fast food is now manufactured at a series of large chemical plants off the New Jersey Turnpike. And he talks about, in great detail, about going in, in and, and uh, the guy dips a a piece of clean sort of filter paper in a, in a clear liquid, and he puts it up to his nose, and it's a McDonald's hamburger. It smells exactly like a hamburger. That's the flavoring that they're putting in there. It's produced chemically. Same thing for the French fries. It's produced chemically at these factories in New Jersey. The potatoes don't have that much flavor. Okay? They, they adjust the sugar. They adjust the starch. If, if, it's, you know, part, if it's a season where there's a, too little sugar, they do that, but they also add this flavoring that's manufactured in New Jersey. And he goes, this is, it's, if you haven't read the book, you, you ought to read it just for this chapter. It's, it's remarkable, the, the, the chemicals, the chemical industry, what the chemical industry does. And he points out that, you know, when you see this on the label, natural versus artificial flavor, well, that's not really a distinction. Uh, all it means is if it's natural is that at some point, way down the line, it came 
from some kind of plant or animal or something, but, uh, but it may have been gone through many, many chemical processes. There may be nothing uh, natural about it at all. He talks about the industrialization of poultry operations and of ranching operations. This is something that I talk a good bit about in my classes at UT. Uh, I think people generally are unaware to the, of the extent to which Farms have disappeared and, and been replaced by industrial-scale agricultural operations, um, and the tremendous ecological and economic and moral problems that arise there, and I put the emphasis on the moral, um, there's a lot of animal cruelty in industrial uh, operations. Uh, we're talking about giant feedlots where cattle are finished off um, with they're grain-fed. These, these are animals that are designed mostly to eat grass. And they're, they're fed grain and, and many far worse things that Schlosser documents, including, um, including animal wastes and, 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 in the past at least, other animals, including pets from, uh, from uh, humane society shelters and things like that that are ground up and put in the animal feed. Um, but the, the conditions in feedlots are dreadful. Uh, the, the sanitary conditions, the amount of pollution that's produced there, the odors that are produced there. The, the, here you've got thousands, in some cases hundreds of thousands of animals standing on a concrete pad. These are animals that should be out in a pasture. And they're being fed grain to fatten them very quickly to make them max, maximally available for slaughter. Chickens are treated even worse. Uh, they're confined indoors for their entire lives. They never see the sky. They never see the sun. Uh, their growth is maximized um, on minimum feed, so they, they, they know exactly what to feed them to produce the greatest growth for the minimum amount of feed. It's all, everything is dictated by economic considerations. A broiler chicken, for example, is killed at seven weeks, though its normal lifespan is seven years, so it never, gets, it never even grows up. Um, crowding makes a, a natural pecking order for chickens uh, impossible. Chickens in a, in a farmyard or in nature would establish a pecking order. So they kind of go nuts. They don't, their, their behavior is, is bizarre because they, they can't engage in the normal behaviors that, that chickens would engage in. They're kept confined in cages so narrow they can't even spread their wings, so they never have the chance to stretch. Uh, a chicken naturally dust bathes. There's no dust there. They're wire cages. Um, and so on and so on. I could go into much greater detail. Uh, much of this is not from this book. Much of this is, is from other sources. Um, a good source there would be Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation. Singer argues in that book that food animals lead miserable lives from birth to slaughter, and uh, he documents that in great detail. So, that, so the animals that are, that are being used as input to the fast food industry are not treated humanely by any means. Uh, often, if I teach a large class, I'll, I'll ask uh, the students, I'll say, uh, raise your hand, how many of you have ever been inside a, a contemporary poultry operation? Almost nobody ever raises their hand. And I ask, why is that? Why have you never seen that? Somebody doesn't want you to see that. Okay? If you did see that, you might be disturbed enough that it would change your consumption behavior. Um, so that's a, that's a significant issue. Then... Uh, Schlosser talks about the meatpacking industry, the slaughterhouses. Um, you can imagine there, I don't know, very few people have ever visited a, a slaughterhouse either, but they're remarkable places. Uh, sanitation problems, bacterial contamination pro problems. He talks about how 
uh, meat has, uh, in many cases, become infected with E. coli strains that are, uh, in some cases, deadly. Um, and he winds up with a, uh, with a kind of summary of what the fast food industry has achieved in, in, this, in this history since, the, since World War II. I'm going to read you now my favorite quote from the book. Uh, it's, um, it's in that final chapter. He's going to a, uh, uh, what's called the Chain Operators Convention, where the main speaker is Mikhail Gorbachev, the, the Russian, former Russian premier. And uh, he's listening to the speeches there, and I'll just read you a paragraph of uh, Schlosser's wonderful prose. The 26th Annual Chain Operators Exchange, which was in December 1977, officially opened with a video presentation of the national anthem. As the song boomed from the speakers throughout the grand ballroom, two huge screens above the stage displayed a series of patriotic images, the Statue of Liberty, the Lincoln Memorial, amber waves of grain. In one of the morning's first speeches, an executive hailed the restaurant industry's record profits the previous year, adding, without irony, As if things weren't good enough, consumers also dropped all pretense of wanting healthy food. Of wanting healthy food. See, what had happened was that a survey, an ongoing survey, had been done since 1982, and this was 97, where they uh, were surveying uh, public concerns about things like salt and fat and and, uh, so on in the food. And in 97, these public concerns, according to the survey, were at the lowest point ever. And they were celebrating this at this fast food convention because, of course, it meant more business for them. Um, enough said. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a quick summary of the book. Now I just want to make a few comments of my own, and then we'll, we'll open it up. So what's the picture that we get here, the overall picture? We have a food system that supplies large numbers of people in this country that produces great wealth for a few, but low wages for many. That produces short-term pleasure. The food really tastes good. But long-term misery in terms of disease and and, and health problems that result from a diet of that sort for many. And we have food that is neither physically nourishing nor spiritually nourishing. And I want to say a little bit what, about what I mean by spiritually nourishing there. Before I do, I want to, uh, here's another quote from Schlosser. This, again, is toward the end of the book, where he's looking forward and he says, where do we go from here? He says, The history of the 20th century was dominated by the struggle against totalitarian systems of state power. The 21st will no doubt be marked by a struggle to curtail excessive corporate power. The great challenge now facing countries throughout the world is how to find a proper balance between the efficiency and the amorality of the market between the efficiency and the amorality of the market. And that's what I want us to reflect on. The market is a very efficient mechanism. What it does is it adjudicates the relationship between supply and demand. Okay? 
Often it creates demand, but, but, it, but it, it, it fundamentally, the purpose of a market is to satisfy people's desires. It's to, it's to supply demand. That's what a market is about. Why do we want to do that? What's, what's, the, what's the origin of that thought? What I want to inject a little philosophy in here maybe to talk about, that's a very modern idea, okay? That's an idea that began in Western Europe with the Enlightenment, in the United States with the Enlightenment, at the end of the 18th century. Nobody talked about satisfying desire before that period. And the notion there... Actually, satisfying desire didn't even occur in the Enlightenment. What we get there is, is something more like what you hear from Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, the, the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness there is the one that we're talking about. The idea that, that morality, that society ought to be organized to produce human happiness. That was an Enlightenment ideal. It was a very new ideal. Prior to that, there was no, there was no effort to, on the part of organized societies to organize themselves in a way that would maximize human happiness. That was not on the agenda. That became on the agenda at the end of the 18th century. Okay, so, so economists got to thinking about what that meant. What does it mean to maximize happiness? That's what a market's supposed to do. And, and they began to equate happiness with the satisfaction of desire. Because desire is something you can measure. Desire you can measure by a person's willingness to pay. Okay? How much a person wants something is how much money they're willing to give for it. Well, it's also relative to their income. But, uh, but basically that's the idea. So, so, so the, the whole discipline of economics reinterpreted the notion of pursuit of happiness in terms of satisfaction of desire. And that's the foundation of neoclassical economics. That's the whole business that we, that we, that, that whole discipline all through the 20th century is based upon uh, the market idea of trying to satisfy as many desires as possible by adjusting supply to demand. Demand is desire, right? What was left out of that equation is that satisfaction of desire is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness often comes to us from things that we never desired at all. So we get get fired from a job, and we we never wanted that to happen, but you get another job, and it turns out to be better, and you're happier. So sometimes getting what you want would make you less happy, than getting what you didn't want. Happiness and satisfaction of desire are different. Also, short-term desire and long-term desire are different. So getting what you want now may satisfy you in the short term, but your long-term happiness may depend on you not getting what you want now. As, for example, with the fast food industry, where you know getting all those calories and all that salt and sugar and fat right now may seem very satisfying, but if you pay for it later in terms of heart disease or stroke or cancer, diabetes, um, it's not worth the price. The market is insensitive to the difference between short-term and long-term desire. The market is, indifference to the, is, is insensitive to the difference between happiness and desire. And because of those reasons, because the market is, is, is working towards something else, something other than human happiness, 
it has nothing to do with morality. Even if you think that morality, even if you think that the morality should, should promote human happiness, and there are questions about that too, but, but let's take that for granted. Let's take what Jefferson says in the Declaration of Independence for granted. We, we're about the pursuit of happiness. It's not at all clear that fast food gets us there. It's not at all clear that the fast food industry gets us anywhere close to that in the long term, in the long run. What should we oppose to it? One of my favorite authors uh, is Wendell Berry. How many of you are familiar with Wendell Berry? Okay, a lot of you. Wendell Berry is a farmer who farms up in Kentucky. Uh, he's very old now. I, I guess he's still alive. I haven't heard. No? He, did he die recently? Is he? Okay, yeah. But he has, he has this wonderful agrarian outlook on... He, he's, he's, he's a person who, more than anybody else I've ever read, understands the importance to human sanity and human liberty of the small farm. How, why that's such an important part of American culture. Why it's been so much of the American character. He, he really, really understands that better than anybody else. How the small farm is a necessary part of a, of a healthy society in all kinds of ways. And what I most want to emphasize from Barry is something that, that he points out in one of his essays. What morality is really, what morality really ought to be aimed at, more than anything else, is, is long-term, broad-scale health. Health is, is really the fundamental thing. And then he, then he goes on to an, an etymology of the term health, which is something was, it was a kind of revelation for me. I had not seen this. Uh, the term health comes from the old English root hail, the word hail, H-A-L which is the source of the modern terms heal, hail, whole, wholesome, but also significantly hallow and holy. Those are all part of the same root, the same idea in the original Old English. And uh, what, ben, what, what Barry does in his work is something that I've seen very few other people do. And point, he, What he does is he points out the spiritual significance of all this. That spirituality is a matter of the wholeness of a community, the wholeness of an individual, a right relationship with uh, what is larger than, than humanity. Um, uh, and that's the fundamental thing that gets disrupted in, um, in a system that, that focuses on immediate desires and wealth to the exclusion of all else. You lose this sense of health. You lose this sense of wholeness. I've got a couple of minutes left, and I want to just give some examples to, to try to make this a little bit clearer. Of course, it's obvious with respect to personal health that the, the, the kind of system of food that, that's being supplied by the fast food restaurants is, is, is not promoting personal health. From Schlosser, once again, a couple of quotes. The United States now has the highest obesity rate of any industrialized country in the world. More than half of all American adults and about one-quarter of all American children are now obese or overweight. There are two different categories there. Obesity has been linked to heart disease, colon cancer, stomach cancer, breast cancer, diabetes, arthritis, high blood pressure, infertility, and strokes. And that's not the entire list. Okay, so we've got a food system which is producing those effects. That's not a healthy food system. It's producing pollution on vast scales in those feedlots and poultry, industrial poultry operations that I was talking about. 
Fast food is never local food. It's always from someplace far away. So it has to be trucked across the continent in 18-wheelers. And those 18-wheelers are producing diesel fumes all the way across the continent. That's carcinogenic fumes, but also carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is the major source of global climate change, which we have to get a handle on. You know, uh, it just came out last week. This first half of this year is the warmest year on record. First is, is the warmest half year on record. Uh, and we've seen this continually year after year for the last decade or so. Uh, global climate change is a serious problem. And whenever you've got a, a, a system that relies on, on mass transportation and you destroy local food systems, you destroy the local farms, you destroy the, the family operations, then you're dependent on oil, you're dependent on fossil fuel, and you're, you're uh, creating these great problems um, that are changing the Earth's climate. And then there's this spiritual element, and, it, and that's really hard to articulate. It's really hard to put into words. Uh, but one way to get at it is to, to point out that we are more alienated from the sources of our food than any other generation that has ever existed on the face of this earth. We don't know where it comes from. You, go, you, you get your burger from McDonald's or you get your french fries. You don't know what went into that or who was hurt by it or what was polluted by it or where it came from. Was that beef from South America? Was it from Mexico? Was it from the Midwest? Where, where, we, we, we have no connection to it. It's a very different thing to, to have a, a relationship to a farmer or to be a farmer or to be a gardener or to have a relationship to someone who has hunted the meat or to hunt the meat yourself. Uh, that's a much closer, less alienated relationship. It's a relationship where there's a lot more meaning. It, it means something when you eat some food that you've grown your own or you eat some food that, that a farmer that you know has grown. It doesn't mean anything when you buy that burger from McDonald's. The fundamental idea is that, you, is that we needed to take a much, much broader look than wealth or immediate desire or anything else. We need to ask, what are the conditions, the ideal conditions with respect to food in particular for human life? What would, the best, what would, food, what would a food system be like that would make the best kind of human life? That's what we need to ask. What should we do politically? Well, Schlosser gives a number of recommendations. Here's one of my favorite. I completely agree with this recommendation. He says, in 1995, the American Academy of Pediatrics declared that advertising directed to children is inherently deceptive and exploits children under, the eight, under eight years of age. The Academy did not, however, recommend a ban on such advertising because it seemed impractical and would infringe upon advertisers' freedom of speech. Today, the health risks faced by the nation's children far outweigh the needs of its mass marketers. Congress should immediately ban all advertisements aimed at children that promote foods high in fat and sugar. Makes perfect sense. What we've got instead is a Supreme Court that just declared that corporations are persons and um, that they can give any amount of money that they want to Congress, so it doesn't look like Congress is going to act in that direction. Uh, I could say a lot more about what we ought to do personally, but I know that many of you know that already. Um, some of you have been doing it. I, I know uh, a lot of you have been doing it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip that part, and I'm going I'm to just give you one more quote from Schlosser. This is his vision of that ideal, healthier 
more spiritual food system. Whatever replaces the fast food industry should be regional, diverse, authentic, unpredictable, sustainable, profitable, and humble. It should know its limits. People can be fed without being fattened or deceived. Um, I was hoping that you would touch on the fact that fast foods are very addictive, and I'm wondering if that if it's just something as simple as fat, sugars, and salts, or is there something a little more sinister, or am I just being paranoid? You know, this is so, I, I've wondered about that as well, and uh, and I don't have any. I'm not, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm, I don't have any um, any special knowledge about that. Uh, Schlosser does talk in the book about these chemical factories that that uh, adjust the taste of these foods to the point where they're maximally satisfying to a human being. Um, and um, this is, you know, it's, it, that's done deliberately. Whether that's exactly addictive, I'm not sure in a technical sense of addictive, but clearly it's hard to stop eating that stuff. And you, you tend to overeat it. That's, that's certainly true. Just as an example of addiction uh, to that kind of food, have any of you ever been in a fast food restaurant when it wasn't fast? (laughs) Stand in line, four or five people in front of you, something in the system fails, and people start to get really pissed off because it's not fast. So to me, that's an addiction. If you can't wait five minutes for a sandwich... Obviously, you've never made one for yourself. <laughs> um, the other thing I'd mention to this, and maybe you've, a lot of you already read this, but if you're talking about desire, uh, Michael Pullan's book, Botany of Desire, is an excellent example of our relationship to food. Yes. And then the other one that he's uh, a little more recent, um, Omnivore's Dilemma. Omnivore's yes, book. thank That's you. It's a great book. Yeah. It's a terrific book and is very educational and feed it to your children. Thank you very much, by the way. Those are both good reading suggestions. Michael Pollan's work is very good. Yeah, I'm sure you know that the UN just recently released, uh, released a report that said that uh, basically that civilization could not survive without a change to a plant-based diet. The reaction from uh, commenters online was as though their religion had been challenged. Is it really possible to get people to change their diet? Wow, that's a big question. Yeah, people can change their diet. A lot of people have. Uh, one, uh, one of the things that I left out because the time was running short was that, that, uh, that one of the things that we all need to do is eat lower on the food chain. Whether, whether you, uh, you, you, know, you want to be a vegetarian or not, uh, the American diet is, is too heavy in, in meats, especially red meats, and it's not good for you, and it'll be better for you. It's, it's healthier to eat less red meat, less meat in general. Uh, you, you wind up with, with fewer uh, illnesses. Almost all the... the, the Diet-related illnesses that we have, in the, all the diet-related illnesses that we have in this country, are a result of excess, not of want, of eating too much of the wrong things, not of eating not enough of the right things. Um, so, um, yeah, people people can change, but they but they need to see the relationship between health and diet, and and too few are are able to see that, given that. The vast amount of propaganda that's thrown at them, the vast amount of enticement that's thrown at them through marketing.
About a month ago, a study came out linking industrialized agriculture that you talked about with greenhouse gases, but not the way most of us would expect. <laughs> there was a study that claimed that if you look at the uh, investment made in the Green Revolution, and by that they mean the explosion of agricultural output per input, that that investment was more effective at cutting greenhouse gas than, and they compared it to, I believe, the European carbon credits program, um, mm-hmm. saying that if you uh, compared that output to what it would take uh, in terms of clearing for agricultural land for more traditional methods of agriculture, the burning that would be done uh, would more than offset. And so that industrialized agriculture was carbon positive. <laughs> and I... Yeah. I know the scientific community will answer that, but uh, what would you as a philosopher answer to the claim that we needed that kind of activity for our population growth? Oh, well, that's that's an even bigger question when you bring in population growth. Uh, Okay, two things. The assumptions in that study, I'm sure sure it made a number of assumptions. Um, As you say, it's comparing industrialized to traditional slice and burn or something like that. Well... There's no, there's no comparison there. You can't feed a, a huge, you know, a global population of 7 billion, which is what we're almost at now, on slash and burn agriculture. So that, there, there's, just, there's, there's no point in even making that kind of comparison. Um, also, when we're, I think you, the kind of industrialized agriculture that's being talked about there is, is, is basically plant-based and not, yeah, so, so what, the, what those plants are doing is they're removing carbon from the atmosphere. Now, as soon as they're consumed, the, the carbon goes back into the atmosphere. So it's basically carbon neutral. Um, but when you, but so that we're not talking about what I was talking about, which is the meat industry, and primarily, and the vast transportation network needed, the, the, the non-local transportation network needed to, to get food to processors and then to market, many le- levels of processing and then to market. That definitely is not carbon neutral. That definitely is, is one of the major sources of carbon. Uh, uh, the, the, the 18-wheelers that are constantly running on the, on the interstate, that's, that's, a, that's a huge one. So, so there, it's not at all carbon neutral. Um, no doubt, um, uh, if you're growing a lot of food with a lot of fertilizer, you're, you're, you're uh, pulling some carbon out of the atmosphere. It's going to go back up. But um, it's better than cutting forests and burning them. Yeah, but that's no, that's not a, that's not an interesting comparison. Uh, now, with respect to population, that's a whole other issue. Uh, just, uh, okay, let me say one word about that. I was at, at a conference in Europe earlier this year. Uh, one of the foremost experts on solar power in the world was touting the virtues of solar power. He said, "Look, we can." We can um, we can solve this problem. All, all we need to do is 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 ramp up the solar energy industry. He said, the Earth receives 800 terawatts. That's trillions of watts of sunlight, uh, and uh, we only need seven to meet the population demands that we'll that we'll have in 2050. We only need seven additional. We can make that up with solar power, and. Uh, and I, I raised my hand. And I said, okay, 800 terawatts. How much of that is absorbed by clouds? Oh, some considerable percentage. 
Two-thirds of the Earth's surface is water, okay? So you have to take that out because you can't put solar panels over water. Much of the rest of the Earth's surface is at high latitudes. You've you got to exclude that because there's not enough solar radiation there to make solar energy generation worthwhile. So you're, you're confined to the temperate and tropical latitudes. We're now looking at 5 or 10% of the Earth's surface covered by solar panels. And the reason why we're looking at that much is because population is expected to grow to 9 billion by 2050. Okay. Uh, where are we going to put all those people? Where are we going to put all those solar panels? Um, even, if we can, even if we can do that, you know, we're, population is the most fundamental problem. It's, it's bigger than the problem of fast food, frankly. It's bigger than, than, than anything else we've got. And people are afraid to talk about it, but, but it is the central problem that we face. To, to kind of dovetail with that and, um, and, and the idea of, of eating lower on the food chain, um, I've read um, that one hamburger is basically about seven, takes about seven acres of grain to create one hamburger. So when you, when you look at it from that perspective, I mean, how many loaves of bread would that, would, would that seven acres of grain create? And so, you know, not everybody is going to be able to, to eat hamburgers when the global population reaches 9 billion. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. You see different figures on this, but if you think about it, to produce meat, you're using grain primarily. And, and it's a very inefficient way to, to cycle nutrients because that grain has to be used to, to make the bone, to provide the energy for the animal to move around, and so on and so on. So the amount of output that you get for, per input of, of grain, the amount of nutrient output that you get per input of grain is very small. You hear different figures, but it's, but it's quite small. It's very inefficient. And if we want to you know, increase the efficiency of the food system, you, um, you have to go to eating the grain directly rather than trying to cycle it through animals. Um, got some folks here from UT Press. I, I, I published a book with them a few years back um, called uh, A Land Imperiled. And one of the chapters there documents the decline of uh, agriculture in uh, the upper Tennessee Valley, right where we live. Um, and it has been absolutely dramatic. Local sources of produce of all kinds uh, were much greater in 1900 than they are now. Uh, we, have, we have simply ceded local agriculture to the, to the great industrial operations of the Midwest and the Far West. Um, the, so, so one of the great tasks facing us today is how do you reinvigorate local agriculture? How do you bring it back? Part of the problem is that the, that the best farmland's been developed. Okay? The best farmland is under concrete, the river bottoms, uh, you know, the, the, the great flatlands. I mean, look at, look at uh, West Knoxville. That, that was all farmland. Well, it's going to be hard to turn that back into farms. And, and the land that's not been developed is steep, and that's not good, good farmland. Uh, I'm writing a book called Sustainability and Hope. I think we're headed for great tragedies. I, I don't think we can avoid, given the, the trajectory of the population, given the trajectory of climate change, there are going to be great tragedies. Uh, but the human, human beings have been through periods of great tragedy before and come out okay. You know, we, we'll survive. We'll wind up with something. Uh, our job, as I see it, is to minimize the great tragedies that we already see on the horizon. We know, we know what's coming. Um, and and um, uh, we can make it much worse or we can make it better. Um, and I think the hope lies in as many people as possible working to make it. It's not, not, not to avoid the tragedies that are unavoidable, uh, but to make it, 
make it less bad than it could be and uh, and hope and hope for something to come out on the other side. I've invited, uh, by the way, a speaker to come to UT. Uh, and he'll be giving a talk in October. His name's uh, Alan Thompson from uh, Clemson University. And his whole line of study is, what do we do after the, the climate catastrophe? What's civilization going to look like after the climate catastrophe? And, and he's trying to find hopeful directions that we can begin to take now to prepare for that eventuality. It's a very serious project. It's a very interesting project. Part of the tragedy, we're going to lose some large percentage of the species of plants and animals on this earth. There's so much inertia now that that's unavoidable, that we will lose many, much of the earth's life. Not half of it, but but maybe, in the worst case scenario, close to half. And that is, is a tremendous tragedy because I think that we have made the very serious mistake of undervaluing non-human life um, in the same way that we in the past have made the serious mistake of undervaluing people of different religions or people of different races or people of different um, uh, nationalities. Um, we, we, have made, we have once again made that mistake with respect to beings of other species. And uh, when we recognize that mistake, as we're beginning to, we'll, we'll see the scale of what we've done and, and, uh, and the mistake that we've made there. Um, but it's too late for lots of things. The, the, the carbon dioxide that we've put into the atmosphere will continue to warm the earth for the next century, even if we stop all carbon emissions right now. So, that, so that's the inertia is already in the system. Um, we've, we've simply got to save what we can. Okay, well, we're, uh, we're a little bit over time, so maybe we ought to call it quits. Thank you. Thank you all. Hello, I'm Emily Ellis, Reference Librarian at Knox County Public Library. To hear podcasts of other programs, visit www.knoxlib.org, that's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G, and follow the link to the Brown Bag Green Book webpage.